and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, it's so good to see everyone. Many of you have heard about the friendly rivalry between the Founding Fathers, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. These two giants in the early days of our republic even bet each other on who would live longer. <laughs> each wound up dying on Independence Day, July 4th, 1826. And uh, w what a thought, they died on July 4th. How great is that for the script for America? When Adams, 90 years old, lay dying, he exclaimed, Jefferson remains. <laughs> what he didn't know is that he had not lost but won the bet. Jefferson, aged 82, had actually died five hours earlier at Monticello. And of course, in the days before tweets and Facebook and Instagram, uh, nobody knew it all had happened like that until a couple days later. What most of you don't know is that one of our great Virginia Baptist forefathers also died on July 4th. In his case, the year was 1802, and he was 62 years old. John Waller, went from being swearing Jack in his earlier days to a man that after his conversion preached for 35 years in Virginia and South Carolina. Swearing Jack got saved and didn't look back. He baptized over 2,000 people, planted 18 churches, and ordained 27 church leaders. His daughter wound up marrying the great Abraham Marshall, son of the famous Daniel Marshall. It was Daniel Marshall and Shubal Stearns that uh, not too far from here at Sandy Creek, North Carolina, had uh, started a movement by winning people to Christ, preaching God's Word, and just it was great. They wound up uh, starting a movement that saw so many saved, so many churches get planted. Within a few decades, there was 40 daughter and granddaughter churches, and in many ways, Sandy Creek, what happened there uh, from two guys, uh, Daniel Marshall and uh, Shubal Stearns who himself was married to Shubal, uh, Shubal Stearns' sister Martha, uh, what had happened with them uh, created a movement uh, that uh, in many ways is a, is a forerunner of uh, his granddaddy work to what we celebrate now in the work of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, so cool. But all of that influence came at a cost. In the days before the Second Amendment to the Constitution, religious liberty was not guaranteed, and the state Anglican Church didn't want any competition. And so they had laws against there being any competition. And John Waller uh, was beaten for his Baptist faith, dragged off podiums by his hair, and spent a total of 113 days in Virginia jails for preaching Jesus without state and church permission, state church permission. Just before his death, Swearing Jack's last sermon was at the funeral of a young man he had led to Christ. He spoke from Zechariah 2.4 on the text, Run, speak to this young man. And Jack had been doing that his whole life. John Waller had at one time run up and spoken to that man who was saved. The man had died. He got to do his funeral. And he was so tickled by the uh, you know, way that had happened that he used that text. And he was urging others 
to be lifelong witnesses for the Lord. When the Holy Spirit leads you to speak to somebody, speak the truth of God and the gospel to him or her and see what the Holy Spirit does. Well, in 1 Peter, we've, been, we've seen Peter writing to Christians that were facing hard times. Uh, the three main sections of 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 12, it's the believer's status. The believer is secure and set apart in Christ. Then from chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 12, we saw the believer's roles and responsibilities. The roles and responsibilities are honor and love. And uh, then from chapter 3, verse 8, until the very end of the book, we see the believers call amidst troubles to endure and to thrive. So we're secure and we're set apart. We're to honor God and love one another. And we're to endure and thrive no matter what troubles come. So as Peter comes down the home stretch, chapter 5 begins by addressing first his fellow leaders among the Christians, those on the front line of ministry during difficult days, just like John Waller had been in the early days of Baptist life in America. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Participants in eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the tenor and tone of 1 Peter. I thank you so much that uh, Peter had a pastor's heart. He had a shepherd's heart. He didn't view himself as over anybody. He saw himself as under you and an encouragement to all his fellow elders as they all under the chief shepherd were serving you, God. Help us who are in positions of shepherd leadership to think of ourselves as shepherd leaders, as servant leaders, and to always remember that you're the chief shepherd. You've entrusted us with a certain number of people, Lord, that we already have and as we witness courageously will come to us and will be the shepherds of for your sake and your glory and their growth and their impact in this life. Lord, I thank you that together all of us are participants in eternal glory. Thank you for the privilege of being a pastor of the Church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being set apart, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that uh, for the words of encouragement that Peter gives the entire church, but particularly uh, have a first application to those of us you've called into the ministry, God. And Lord, we are all uh, a type of minister for your glory, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of all of us getting to participate in eternal glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this is a very helpful passage. It's one of the um, uh, places in the New Testament that give us interchangeable titles for New Testament church leaders. It shows us the interchangeable titles for New Testament church leaders. Uh, so in verse 1, underline the word elders and the word elder. In verse 2, over, underline the word shepherd and the word overseers. Underline or circle those or put a little asterisk by them, a star by them, or whatever. Um, because we want to look at how those three words, elder, shepherd, overseer, 
uh, are all interchangeable there. They all essentially mean the same thing. The word elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros, and it speaks of the leader's spiritual maturity. Uh, elder, we could say older, right? Uh, and an elderly person is supposed to be more mature than a child just starting out. And so the word here uh, conveys with it the idea of spiritual maturity. Uh, it had carried over from the Jewish roots of Christianity. Uh, so that's the word elder. The word pastor is the same as the other scriptures that talk of the word shepherd. So pastor shepherd comes from the word poemon and speaks of the leader's calling, the leader's calling to help people to get from where they are spiritually to where God wants them to be. A shepherd uh, thinks of the sheep all the way from their birth to their death and caring for them and their diet and their experiences and keeping them out of trouble and keeping helping them get over uh, medical conditions when they come, you know, getting mites out of their ear, uh, helping keep them away from dangers and troubles and sometimes warding off predators around them and those things. And they want to help get people from where they are to where they need to be. They want to help a non-Christian become a Christian, get saved, and, and, and so they do that for non-Christians. When a person becomes a Christian, they want to help them grow in this faith through biblical instruction and through learning their spiritual gifts and through early efforts at helping others in the name of Jesus in ministry and speaking the word to others in evangelism. In Ephesians 4.11, the word pastor is combined with the word teacher. And let's read those words. So turn from 1 Peter 5 over to Ephesians chapter 4. So you're going to your left uh, to the letters of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16. It says there that God himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I love this passage because it gives me my job description. It says that pastors and teachers are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So my job is to edify the saints and equip them for their individual ministries in the church family. When the individual members of the church fulfill their ministries, whether that's an a out front speaking role or behind the scenes praying and serving role, uh, when every member does their part, we're told the body grows, and that's why it's so sad when members don't do their part <laughs> to bless their church family and, and use their gifts to serve the Lord within the context of their church family and beyond. Uh, when they don't do that, the work of the church is hindered. The body doesn't grow. It's kind of anemic. It needs uh, what uh, could be given by each member's involvement. And so each one of us has a critical role to play in our church and the church being everything that it is uh, called to be and making the impact we're called to make. 
So you got the word elder that uh, is about the, um, the um, mature spiritual maturity. You got the word pastor shepherd that's about the calling, pastor shepherd teacher. And then bishop or overseer, same word, because it comes from the word episkopos, episkopos. You might hear the word episcopalian in there, just like for presbyterus, you could hear, hear the word presbyterian. Unfortunately, uh, you know, episkopos has been used to promote a bishop system where there's church leaders over local church leaders, and that was never meant to be. It speaks of the leader's delegated authority. There's your word to fill in the blank with, the word delegated. A bishop or overseer speaks of the leader's delegated authority as they oversee the church on behalf of the church's true head, Jesus Christ. And so being a pastor, an elder, a bishop is interchangeable. It's not to be entered into lightly. It requires spiritual maturity. It, uh, um, it, it involves a clear desire to fulfill the calling of helping people get from where they are to where God wants them to be. Um, and it involves the concept of leadership oversight underneath the true leader, Jesus Christ, the greatest leader, Jesus Christ. We're under authority, his authority. These sobering words appear to church leaders. James 3.1 says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. And whenever I read that, it makes me want to do a gulp. Because, uh, you know, I don't think any of us immediately thinks, oh, that's great, I'm going to get a stricter judgment. Um, but it does show how seriously God takes the office of pastor uh, that um, you're gonna, I'm going to give an account uh, for um, those that I have influenced. Uh, and that is a sobering thing indeed to give an account not just for yourself, but also for um, everyone you've influenced. And of course that's really true for all of us in a sense, but the higher position like pastor um, in the church, uh, the uh, greater sense of uh, accountability and um, judgment to come, or evaluation time to come before the Lord. And that's, but there's, but there's also roles for all of us. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account." So the second part then reads of Hebrews 13, 17, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So we're to obey our leaders and submit to them. And then again, this concept that they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I'll have to give an account for my stewardship of the pastoral position with you. And it says that you guys are supposed to help me by making my joyful, my ministry to you a joy and not a grief. So for those of you that bring me joy, thank you. <laughs> and for those of you that bring me grief, well, uh, memorize this verse. <laughs> it says it would be unprofitable for you. So in other words, uh, part of uh, your evaluation will be helping your church leaders uh, fulfill God's call for us all while we walk this walk together. And if we go do it hand in hand, that'll be a profitable blessing for you. There'll be a reward for that for you and me. And um, uh, you don't want it to turn into unprofitable by not uh, working hand in hand with your church pastors and leaders to get the work of the Lord done. Now, the other thing we should note before moving on is that the New Testament presents each church 
as having multiple shepherds like this, not just the one who is the first among equals, like James was among the Jerusalem church's elders. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, but it would have been crazy for any to think of any local church in the New Testament as having only one deacon. Uh, they had multiple deacons and they had multiple shepherds, multiple pastors, with one being set apart like James was, the first among equals, the leader among the leaders, we might say. And so that uh, the modern designation would be senior pastor. Well, let's look at verse 1, Peter's identification with his fellow elders. Now, he had already identified himself as an apostle in chapter 1, verse 1, and this is one of the apostles' doctrine writings, 1 Peter, uh, that gives the church such wonderful teaching. It's timeless. It's the Word of God. And God worked through the apostles, uh, an office that no longer is in existence. It was for the sake of those who had followed Christ and uh, basically giving us the New Testament. Um, and uh, we are so glad we have it. So in Acts 2, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles clarified all of the Old Testament doctrines and made them understandable in light of Christ's completed work on the cross. And so we're so thankful we have the apostles' doctrine in the New Testament. Uh, but here he wants the pastors, Peter wants the pastors to know he's one of them in heart. He says, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. The elders among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. And so he says, hey, I'm one of you. His words here really indicate that Peter would have been aghast at the notion of being called the first pope, uh, a uh, dictatorial leader who would be setting um, telling the church and people what to do. He wanted them to do what Christ wanted them to do. He would not have used the office as a power trip as so many popes have done. And uh, he, this, this verse just obliterates the idea of there being a pope over the rest of Christendom. In the apostles' eyes, Jesus was the head of the church and leaders are servants of the church on behalf of Christ Jesus. So we should not miss that Peter says here he's their fellow elder. And the apostle John identifies himself the same way in 2nd and 3rd John. When you read through the book of Acts, you see that the apostles functioned as the first team of elders in Jerusalem before they had their wider ministry to the body of Christ around the Roman Empire. Peter led the team of elders in the Jerusalem church. He was the first among equals at first. He was the forefront among them, the senior pastor elder among them. But by Acts 15, James, now not the apostle, James the apostle had been killed by that time, martyred for the faith. But James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, James that wrote the book of James, is the leader of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. And so it's very interesting when the Apostle Paul came into Jerusalem in Acts 21, he submitted himself to James and the elders. From that we get several things. We get the autonomy of the local church. We get that it had elder leadership in a plurality of leaders, a plurality of pastor elder leaders, led by a first among equals. And so Acts 21, an amazing passage there when it tells us that Paul, who was an apostle, submitted to a local church's 
pastor and elders, pastor and pastors, uh, we are seeing something very profound, that even the apostles themselves, when they went to a local church, uh, went not as lords over the work there, but submitted themselves to the local church body. Uh, that is so powerful. So we get the autonomy of the local church with elder leadership led by a first among equals because it says Paul came and submitted himself to James and the elders. So James was the first among equals, the senior pastor there. So Peter has been telling the dispersed Christians that they must share the grief before they share the glory. And so he points to that in his own example. He says in verse 1, he's a witness to the sufferings of the Messiah. In the past tense, he had witnessed Christ's imprisonment, trial, and crucifixion. After Christ's resurrection ascension, Peter had preached salvation in the name of Jesus, and thousands had been saved. He was a witness to what Christ had done in his death and resurrection. Peter had also been a witness of Christ's glory. You'll remember that Peter and John and John's brother James, not the one from Jerusalem, the elder of the church in Jerusalem, Jesus' half-brother, but the brother of John, uh, John, the sons of thunder, the one that had been martyred, Peter, John, and James had been there when Christ was transfigured. And they got a look at what the heavenly Christ looks like. So he had seen Christ's sufferings, but he'd also seen at that transfiguration time, he had seen Christ in his glory, what he'll look like when he returns uh, to earth in his second coming. And Peter couldn't wait to see Christ again. He couldn't wait to see Christ come in glory. So he speaks of the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. Well, folks, we too get to be witnesses for Christ and participants in the coming glory. Maybe we'll be in the rapture generation when, as 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, we will be caught up together with the Lord in the sky in an instant change. Um, for those that die before the rapture and who are already absent from the body and present with the Lord, we'll get to meet them in the air, which is so cool to think about uh, being part of the rapture generation. But all of us will participate in Christ's coming glory. That's why I love how 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So... Peter identifies with them as their fellow pastor, their fellow elder, um, their fellow servant of God leading God's flock. And then in verses 2 and 3, he gives the do's and don'ts of shepherding. The do's and don'ts of shepherding. Let's look at the don'ts first. Verses 2 and 3. The first don't of shepherding is do not, don't shepherd out of compulsion. <laughs> Check yourself or you'll wreck yourself. When you fall into the mindset of, as a pastor, of I have to, uh, and you're begrudging about the work of God, when you fall into the mindset of I have to, you really need to take a step back, take a little mini prayer retreat, and remember that you get to. And I have to do that. Sometimes I get rusted out, burnt out, you know, tired out, and uh, I have to remember how awesome it is, how privileged I am to be a minister, a pastor, in the church of Jesus Christ, I get to study and preach God's amazing word. I mean, your Sunday school teachers do it too, uh, but I get to take time in the office. Uh, I get to, I, I get, I get, I get compensated to spend time studying intently God's word, reading it, studying it, meditating on it, uh, preparing to preach it. What a privilege! 
I get to personally evangelize and baptize many of the people that we as a church lead to Christ. And I've been able to do that not only here, but around the world on mission trips uh, that I can take many times because of the position I'm in. I get to provide prayer and pastoral care and counsel to sheep, the Lord's flock, during the highs and lows of life. And I've learned to treasure those moments when I'm with a person right before they die or help a couple come back together that uh, looked like their marriage wouldn't last. Uh, get to lead somebody to Christ and get to be there with them through the highs and lows of life and their family. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege. I get to disciple saints and mentor present and future leaders. Uh, and everything I do falls under those categories of preaching and teaching, uh, personal evangelism, prayer and pastoral care, discipleship and mentoring, and uh, leadership. What uh, uh, awesome privilege and responsibility. I get to um, work with our wonderful staff here. Uh, think about how uh, Alan and the youth just went over to God's pit crew and put in a hundred hours of uh, manpower service during their time there doing some blessing buckets and uh, just to equip him, to equip them, and uh, to help a great ministry. What a privilege. Don't shepherd out of compulsion. Also, don't shepherd for the money. For dishonest gain, he says, church leaders must see their position of authority as an, uh, must not, oh my goodness, must not see their position of authority as an opportunity to enrich themselves. Uh, churches are told in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 to pay their teaching pastors appropriate compensation. But in Old Testament and the New Testament and today, there are lots of false prophets and false preachers who did it for personal gain for the money. And that is an absolute shame. I can say in the position I took up at uh, Wayne Hills Baptist Church and the position I took here at the Tabernacle, uh, talking about money was not part of the front end of the thing, following the call of God to be a youth pastor, then a pastor there, and then a pastor here, uh, what was primarily on my mind. But uh, it's not about the money, it's about the ministry. And when it becomes about the money, then I hope God will strike me dead and take me home right then and uh, shame on those uh, teachers, those false teachers and preachers who buy airtime to talk to people about planting a seed and that nonsense of asking you to send money to the Lord but giving you their address. Uh, and um, just what a shame and what a blight on Christianity that there's ever been those who have done it for the money. Peter says, don't, don't do it out of a begrudging sense of compulsion. Don't shepherd for money dishonest gain. And also do not shepherd as lords over the people. They don't expect to be served. Instead, they view their office as one of service. Let's just turn over to Matthew chapter 23 and get a few other verses on this. Matthew chapter 23. In one of the passages of Scripture, chapters of Scripture, I should say, that has the most woes, Jesus is just going off on those false teachers, uh, their attitude of uh, pe teaching people uh, thinking the people that uh, they were over were a, that they could lord it over them and that they were a means to their end and their proud uh, ministries. So in Matthew chapter 23, 4, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. 
uh, they didn't lead by example. Instead, they made unreasonable demands on people, demands they themselves were unwilling to really do. Matthew chapter 23, whoa, verses 11 and 12, he says, uh, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So woe to those who exalt themselves. They'll be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the greatest among you shall be your servant. Um, this is a quote from Hilary of Arles, a man named Hilary of Arles back in the 400s. And he says, even though you may have authority over the, the church in what you say or do in the office you occupy, you should never have a superior attitude toward others. What a great quote from 1,600 years ago. So those are the don'ts of shepherding. In 1 Peter 2 and th chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we also see the do's of shepherding. Instead, oversee willingly, eagerly, and ex examples uh, to the flock that is entrusted to you. So do shepherd willingly, freely. Jesus said, freely receive, freely give. Shepherd willingly. We talked about the get-tos, and that's how I feel more than I feel have to. You get to. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We get to do that. Um, and we should do it willingly, freely, joyfully. We also want the do's of shepherding. Do shepherd willingly. Do shepherd eagerly. I, I, again, I don't shepherd because I have to. I shepherd because I get to. And then shepherd as examples, as examples to the flock entrusted to you. None of us are perfect. And, uh, but that's part of it, too. We who are in ministry are there to grow publicly. Um, that is such a powerful thought. I remember hearing that for the first time. A good friend of mine back up in the valley was a fellow pastor, and he'd heard that in his classes at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and another friend of mine uh, was, had graduated from, a Presbyterian man had graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary, Jackson, Mississippi. And his professor had said, you are in ministry to grow publicly. So we're in ministry to grow publicly. Uh, a man named Passatius of Dumium in the 500s said, Practice what you preach so that you may offer your people not only advice but a model as well that they may imitate your example. And so at some point, pastors are going to be in a situation uh, where things aren't going right and their people are going to look to see what they do. In that moment, do they pray? In that moment, do they trust God? In that moment, uh, do they step back behind others or do they step up to serve and meet a need? Uh, and so um, when a moment calls for courage, do they see courage? When a moment calls for um, grief, do they see the pastor leading out in grief? Uh, and all those things were to be examples of how to live the Christian life. And again, we're not perfect. Uh, we make mistakes. Even that's an example. When you make a mistake saying, I'm sorry to somebody. When you make a mistake working to correct it. When you make a mistake and when you sin against somebody, you ask them for forgiveness. You ask God for forgiveness. You uh, keep short accounts like Pastor Lamar talked to in your own life. Talk to, uh, talk to us about, do you do that in your own life? And so we want to be examples to the flock. We also do want to shepherd those entrusted to us. Uh, being examples to the flock. Uh, 
those that have been entrusted to you. And the word entrusted is the word kleroi, the folks allotted to you. We already saw Hebrews 13, 17 says the pastor will give an account. In James 3, 1, we saw the pastor will have a stricter judgment. So with the difficulties Christians are experiencing in these days, and with the hard parts of pastoring in these reject authority days, it's no wonder that most denominations are struggling to find pastors. Um, and a few years ago, when we had record numbers at Southern Baptist Seminaries, I would have said we seem to be going the opposite direction. And we might be. We might be. But I fear that it's also increasingly true at Liberty, a university in our Southern Baptist Seminaries. Uh, to be sure, there are lots of students in those places talking of going into the ministry. But the numbers in the pastoral training tracks need to rise significantly. At our Southern Baptist seminaries, uh, I think about the Master of Divinity program. The numbers are still healthy, uh, but uh, many are in other programs and are studying to be counselors or associate church staff, which we need, missionaries, which of course we need, um, and the world needs. But uh, you really want to track closely at seminaries how many are in their Master of Divinity program. I started at a, a non-Southern Baptist seminary in Denver, and uh, their enrollment was up, but the numbers in their Master of Divinity, Divinity program was way down, and they were training more people to go out and do biblical counseling than to be pastors. And again, there's a role and a need for biblical counseling, uh, but um, part of that, uh, th there's a lot of strokes with those who do that, uh, and a lot of the hardships are... Uh, avoided that pastors are in as the authority figure. Um, and uh, there's simply no way to get around the fact that um, pastors take on that burden of accountability to the Lord and the people they lead of um, having to say unpleasant things to some, them, some, them sometimes, having to talk in terms of not just discipleship and counseling, but even discipline and warnings. Uh, not only encouragements, but exhortations. And uh, that, uh, is, uh, that is tough sometimes. And I think many younger people are seeing the stress their pastors are under and have heard those horror stories of uh, people leaving the ministry and uh, they're saying, no, I'm not going to sign up. And so praise the Lord that there are a good number. We need even more that will say, yes, I feel a call from God. I want to be a pastor over souls. I will step up and get the training. And, uh, and we used to, you know, many are, are being told, unfortunately, do some other kind of degree. Uh, and only in seminary then do you do pastoral stuff. And many times we've already lost them to something else. Uh, the business world or whatever. We need godly businessmen, but we need pastors. We need, uh, and, and we ought to encourage them to take pastoral classes and Christian education classes and uh, do the Master of Divinity program and be willing not just to go out and plan a cool, hip ch church, but also help revitalize the number of churches that are going to be desperately looking for leadership in the future. And at the same time, praying that uh, our churches humble themselves before God and are ready to follow the leadership of even a young pastor and uh, to build a team around him of supportive pastors and lay folks that together will do great things for Christ and for the church.
Um, there's a world to win to Jesus, and we need to encourage our people to sign up, not just young, but also older. Historically, many Baptists did that in later years. Men would be saved in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and become pastors in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even their 70s. Uh, and, you know, all of us should think in terms of serving Christ with everything we got until our last breath. Uh, here's a quote from a godly layman who a uh, very successful uh, scientist who sold his business and made a lot of money and did great things with it and it's time to advance God's kingdom after that. And uh, here is what this about Terry Douglas. Even though Terry graduated from high school nearly 60 years ago, he says, I have heard if we remain healthy that our most productive decade is in our 60s and our second most productive decade is in our 70s. The Bible doesn't say anything about retiring. I'm a big believer in Ephesians 2.10 which says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to be able to stand before the Lord and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that good? Praise the Lord for that. I get encouraged by that. I'm 53 years old now when I think, hey, listen, uh, I might not be winding down. I might just be winding up to great impact in my 60s and 70s. Well, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Well, the shepherd's coming reward, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Oh, how poignant those words are. The one who wore the crown of thorns now himself wears the crown as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Think about the different ways we're told about how the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is our shepherd, the Lord is my pastor, I shall not want. How about John 10, the Lord is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the shepherd, he's the good shepherd. Hebrews 13 says the Lord is the great shepherd of the sheep. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. So here we read that the Lord is also the chief shepherd, the arch shepherd. All under shepherds serve under his authority. All pastors serve under the main senior pastor, Jesus himself. Shepherds get little glory now. It's nice to know <laughs> the chief shepherd will award those who shepherd well with the crown of glory. The crown that doesn't fade away, the unfading crown, contrasts with the crown of laurel that Olympians received. The laurel crown faded over time, but the crown the eternally minded will get will never ever fade. That's in part because the crown is made up of people impacted by the ministry. The Lord must have known that I needed some encouragement recently. Uh, and uh, I've had a dozen people in the last month talk to me about how much my ministry in their life has meant in them becoming a Christian, their marriage being saved, or their, uh, th them finally getting it and growing. And I, I, every once in a while you just need to hear it. And that's why the scripture does say to share with those that uh, have served you by the preaching and teaching of the Word. Share how it's impacted us, and it's important to do that. But uh, the crown uh, isn't made up of pats on the back. The crown is made up of that true ministry impact in people's lives. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20, What is our hope or joy or crown? What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you, church in Thessalonica, Christians in Thessalonica, Christians in Danville, Virginia, you are our glory and joy. 
our crown. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.